Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes. The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show. It's all how you look at it. We only have control over our attitudes, our outlook, and our effort. It took about a year of denial for me to realize that no money was ever coming, and I was just digging myself deeper into debt. When I got to that $80,000 of debt and realize that, shit, I don't have any way to pay this. And I have no outs. I don't know what to do. It was the scariest situation of my life. And I isolated myself from everybody. I avoided people because I not only owed the bank money, I owed friends money. I owed people money like that I cared about. I didn't want to be that guy who, who ran away. Somebody just ran away on me. And I didn't want to be that guy. But I ended up spending two weeks in bed and just medicating and, and avoiding the world and that wasn't helping and then until I eventually had my adult moment where I was like no one's gonna save the day I gotta figure this out and I'm gonna be honest I heard about this guy named James Altiger who got rich and then went broke and got rich again and then went broke and as I said I read your story and I was like this is the first guy who's just honest about it and who's not embarrassed and that was one of the first steps you know in me just telling people like I fucked up I don't know what I did but I you know I don't know what to do but I fucked up um, I focused on taking personal responsibility. I didn't see any value anymore in feeling like a victim. I think I, for a long time I enjoyed the pity that I got. I enjoyed people feeling sorry for me. But now I got to a point where people's pity isn't going to pay the bills. You know, People's empathy isn't going to help me move further right now. I need to take all the responsibility I can. You know, it's, it's interesting because you look at stories of successful people or you know, people who are striving for success no one ever says, man, I was, I, what, what really made me a success was being a victim. Yeah. <laughs> I really took that victim thing and just took it to the top. Yeah, I, no I one, ran with it. Everyone <laughs> felt sorry for me and they just hit me with bags of money. Yeah, like victimhood is never a strategy. Yeah. How do you rolling? Okay, I'll do, I'll officially start then. All right. Perfect. So just talking to the listeners for a second, I got a book a month ago from a publisher saying, hey, uh, maybe you want to read this book. Uh, it might be interesting for a podcast. And I get books like that from publishers probably every day. And A, most of the books I just don't read because I am either interested in reading other books or I'm preparing for podcast guests or reading their books. But anyway, I got this book called Unlearn by Humble the Poet. 
101 Simple Truths for a Better Life. And I started reading it and I loved it. And I was thinking, who is this guy? Humble the Poet. And then uh, a few days after that, I got an email from a good friend of mine, uh, Jay Shetty, who I'm on his podcast coming in, in June. And he introduced me to Humble and suggested, hey, maybe you might want to have this guy on your podcast. He has a book coming out. And I'm like, I know. I read the book. It's great. So we worked it out. And Humble, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Very, 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 very. Thank you a lot. So so not only, first off, let me explain why this book uh so I started. I start, You'll see. I started bookmarking yeah. and 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 making notes and stuff. But I was bookmarking every single chapter, so that's yeah. a problem. And every chapter is only two pages, so you're pretty much folding every other page. Right. So I don't even. <laughs> I don't even. This is going to be an interesting structure because what am I going to do? Talk to you about? There's 101 chapters, uh, and I have every chapter bookmarked. So what <laughs> I'm going to do is I'm going to randomly open to different chapters and we'll talk about them. But let's. I also. You're also such an interesting person like you have a, a very popular youtube channel um where it's this you have uh videos where you're doing uh you have like rap videos you have uh spoken word poetry you have funny videos you've done some stuff with um lily singh who's a a, a really huge uh youtuber um also from toronto right you're, yeah we started out together yeah you were like hanging living together right uh we, we lived together in la yeah Why'd you live together in LA? Uh, by, by the way, she's the only YouTuber where I've seen billboards advertising her in yeah. New York City, which I thought was like a really creative strategy for a YouTuber to, to use the most raw offline advertising. 1000%. It was did, so analog. I loved it. Yeah. Did, why did she do that? Um, yeah. So we, uh, to answer the first question, we started living in LA together to split the Airbnb costs. You know, we were out there trying to make stuff happen. And uh, she was in comedy and I was focused primarily in music and more people like comedy than, you know, hip hop music. And her. I, I don't know if that's true. I mean, everyone loves to laugh. Not everybody can follow along to the lyrics. This is, this is what I tell myself to, to justify why her stuff took off so quick. <laughs> well, I think I think comedy on YouTube, uh, like I don't know, there's there's very few, you would know better than me, but there's very few rappers I think who broke out on YouTube yeah. alone. There's like Macklemore perhaps with Thrift Shop. Potentially, yeah. I think Anderson Pack right now too. Oh, I don't know. I don't know him. And I, the only you, other... You will. You will. Uh, Give it another year. Do you know Mac Lethal? No. Okay, see, he's an interesting one for you to check out. Okay, uh, I'll definitely so check he, him out. He's gotten um, millions of views. He he does extremely fast rapping. It's very unusual. Okay. Um, but he's not in any scene. He's like in Kansas City. Oh, that's dope. Yeah. So, uh, uh, but I think more comedians break out on Twitter and YouTube than musicians. You're right. It's easier to consume, I believe, as well. And uh, yeah, they gave her the billboard. It was YouTube that started a, they had a... Uh, a special program and she was uh their top pick and they had bus ads billboards they painted her on the side of buildings in new york but it was also in australia i see so youtube paid for them those. yeah youtube youtube went ahead and, and did a big uh did they big work push um i know this has nothing to do with your book but well i'm just curious. oh no no <laughs> i i mean it's very difficult I, I i thought the reason the digital age came to fruition was because advertisers were like how do i know if my billboard worked you know what's the what's the what's the the ROI on that, or how do you even measure it? Right. So I felt like it was a little bit of uh, YouTube's way to kind of flex into the real world, saying, "Hey, we exist everywhere now." And for her, it definitely did, because what ended up happening was she was also on billboards on like Sunset in LA, 
And whenever, in, in her early years, when she came across celebrities that went to parties, they, they would all be like, oh, I've seen your billboard. That's so funny because I guess maybe people in LA notice billboards because that's how like a movie is almost released. It's like billboard first yeah. and then, you know, the movie comes out. Uh, do you, do you remember any billboards you've ever seen in your life? <laughs> I mean, I guess they exist for a reason, whether we remember them or not. I always think about that even with like naming rights over an arena or a stadium. You're mm. just like, why did, you know, you know, in Toronto, Scotiabank just took took over, you know, our arena where the Raptors play. And it's like, or MetLife Center or like all these other places. And it's kind of like, I guess it goes into our subconscious. I don't think advertisers are spending all this money thinking it doesn't work. I feel like when YouTube did it, I mean, YouTube is the child of Google, and Google is kind of like a money printing machine. Well, well, but you make an interesting point that what they're doing is not even necessarily advertising. They're more like signaling, signaling hey, yeah. we're everywhere. We're everywhere. Everywhere you open your eyes, we, we exist. Yeah, our, our creators are as credible as the... the our creators are just as credible as the ones you're going to see in these movie billboards. And she was in Times Square. Like, you know, they, they put billboards up in time. Some of the digital billboards were for three yeah, hours. Yeah, no, I saw Times them Square. everywhere. Yeah. And on um, Lafayette Street, I saw a billboard. Yeah. I lived right on Lafayette, so I kept seeing her billboard every time I walked out of the my apartment. But um, And the timing was also around, uh, they have something called Brandcast, which is every, I think, the first week of May every year, which is they invite all the big brands to come and and talk and learn about digital advertising. So like that year she was the host and what I also heard was the route for all the, the special guests to, to go to the venue um, had multiple billboards to kind of show it up and then you'd have like, you know, the CEO of Toyota come and talk about how their sales improved when they started advertising on YouTube and it was one of those as well. So I think it was a really big, let's take over the city, flood it and, and it was a couple other creators that had their own billboards as well. Let's flood the city with these these billboards and let people know that this is the new generation of celebrities and influencers. And these are the people that you should be giving your endorsements to. Uh, it's, it's so interesting how, how these things evolve yeah. because we're living in this world where all media, all marketing, all advertising, it's not that it's changing. It's that it changes every day. Yeah. <laughs> like there's no strategy it's it's almost like quantum mechanics. Like if you observe a strategy working, it's not gonna work anymore. <laughs> yeah, by the time it works, it's already played out. Yeah, yeah. So so I kind of I okay. I'm thinking of this as I'm I'm thinking of a structure of this podcast. I want to keep going back and forth to to your book and your story. Yeah, because I, I I think they they interweave with each other. But you know, just in general, I I was I so often read self help books, and I think to myself. This is not helping myself. Yes. <laughs> like, it's just like, I'm not really, it's like this guy read it in another book and now he's writing it because he wants to be a life coach or something and yeah. I hate it. And then I put it down. I don't want to be a life coach. <laughs> <laughs> no, I know that. I can tell. And a lot of these uh, e e e these lessons in the book, well, first off, let's start with the cover. The yeah. book's called Unlearn and you were a school teacher. Yes. So, so let's start with that. Boom. School teacher to unlearning. Okay, yeah, I was an elementary school teacher. Um, you know, the patterns of my life that I just recently discovered was I was always leaning to the path of least resistance. And um, I did really well in school. I didn't struggle in school. And then when I got to university, um, it's a little bit more effort than academic. 
when you got it to do well. And I, I wasn't performing as well. I, be, I went from being an A student to a, to a C student and then scrambling to figure out what am I going to do after I graduate? Like, how do people get employed and make money? And um, just through attending different youth camps as a kid and volunteering with them when I became a teenager, my sister's like, hey, you should be a teacher. You're already really good with kids. And it seems like a fun gig. And I think you'll, you'll dig it. And then I uh, got some friends to give me some fake volunteer hours. I applied within a month um, and I got in. And I'm sure it was a combination of my creative writing and my applications, a little bit of reverse racism, dropping the word representation over and over to get in. Uh, but, uh, what, what, what do you mean? Like, um, what, at, at this ha, point, give me a sentence with the word representation in it. Use represent, representation in a sentence. <laughs> are there any alternate pronunciations? Um, in, the, in the context of teaching in Toronto, Toronto being one of the most, you know, is the most diverse city in the planet, um, and them needing teachers that reflected the population, and gone were the days where everybody had a 60-year-old white lady as their teacher, and we needed some, especially in elementary school, there was a lack of uh, ethnic representation, but also lack of males. So me, you know, people were telling me, like, a male minority, you're a lottery ticket. Like, it's, it's going to be a shoe-in for you to get into teacher's college and get employed. And they were right. I got, I got hired. I got a full-time gig uh, a month before I graduated, while most people in my class took about four years to get, to get the same thing. Wow. So, so like, they... I mean, that's got to be frustrating to graduate teacher's college and then not being able to get a job where you're not really paid that well to begin with. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, it's also there's a lot of supply and demand. You know, living in Toronto, you're an hour away from Buffalo. Buffalo uh, had a college, Madai College, and they had a special teacher's program where you pretty much could buy your way through it, and it was super expensive. So a lot of people went to Madai, and they, they traveled back and forth. So we had a lot of supply that never met the demand. Hmm. And, you know, government cutbacks are always cutting teachers' jobs. And normally that just becomes a hiring freeze. So it got more and more difficult to get a full-time position. And um, at, at that point, in the beginning, I was like, wow, I'm so fortunate. But then I remembered, like, I made big mistakes in my job interview. I was just like, oh, I realized that they also realized that I looked like the kids. You know, I, I taught in the same neighborhood I grew up in. And um, it was important. And, and now looking back, it was an important situation. But um, I was never the most effective teacher. I was never the hardest working. I would never go out of my way and stay super late to do to do some work. Or why? Um, it didn't excite me. I think I enjoyed being with the kids. I didn't know that there was going to be a lot of politics and work before and after the bell. Um, all of that really turned me off to the job. Um, can, every single year, things got more and more difficult. You know, they, the thing with a teacher is a, a natural teacher. A natural teacher, when they teach a child and the child doesn't get it, the teacher takes the responsibility. Like, I'm not delivering it correctly. What am I doing wrong? Um, and what I realized was that, that idea of if something's not working, always take on, the onus can also be exploited. So what was happening is our administration would be like, okay, well, we're going to have to cut one teacher and now everyone's classes are going to get a little bit bigger. But I believe in you guys. You guys can do it. Mm -hmm. Hey, the government mandated this new test that we have to do. It's going to take a week out of your program, but I know we can do it. And making teachers feel like if I can't get all this extra work done, then I'm failing, my, I'm failing as a teacher. Whereas I was looking at it as like, they're just making this harder every single year. And this is just sucking out the fun. Harder for the teachers, harder for the students. Harder for the teachers, harder for the students. You, you, you were, they were setting us up for failure. I had a class one year. I had 35 kids, and I only had 25 hooks for their jackets. You know, and this is Canada with thick, you know, snow pants 
snow boots and winter jackets. So you couldn't even tell two kids to like pair up and, sh- and share a hook. And just being like, how are you guys setting me up for this? Like, how am I supposed to teach these kids when they're sitting on top of each other and we don't even have enough resources for everybody? And most teachers are expected to come out of pocket to buy basic essentials for them. And then the kids are, are, are expected to sell chocolates to raise additional money for field trips. And this is a brand new immigrant neighborhood where even when the parents can't afford to buy these chocolates or can't afford to help with the fundraisers, they'll never admit it because their pride is there. They don't want you to know that they can't afford these things. And I don't know how it is in Canada, but the U.S. has been literally overrun with standardized tests. So yep. every kid is taught to the test. Mm-hmm. So if, if if I would see with my own kids, they would do art and painting and dancing all summer, and then school would start, and it was like, the life would drain out of their face because now it's just all stay up till two in the morning. This might be on the standardized test. This might be on homework. It's just, I felt like, I hate to say high school's bad for kids or school's bad, but I kind of think there must be better ways of of learning at this point because everything's been so formulaic for one type of person maybe. Yeah, it's become templated. And I mean, these all start with somebody with a beautiful philosophy. You know, like a teacher would come up with the philosophy of, hey, if I can figure out how to take a C-plus student and make them into a B student, I can take those strategies and bring everyone one level above to wherever they are. Whether that's turning a D student into a D-minus or whether that's turning a A student to an A-plus student. And then it'll start getting standardized. And then everybody will put their opinions into it. And then it turns into this big standardized test. In Canada, we called it, um, in Ontario, where I was teaching, we called it EQAO. And they had to write it in the third grade, the sixth grade, and the tenth grade. And you would, it, would, it would be a whole month out of the school year to, to prep them and, and, and get them to write this. And they're so stressed. It's like these 15-year-olds so stressed yeah. about this stupid test. And I was test. teaching eight-year-olds who were stressed out about it. Ugh, and horrible. their parents were stressed out about it. And, and I tried to explain to the parents, I'm like, listen, you're not gonna, you write the test in May, you're not going to get your results back until October. Your kid is going to be in grade four and forgot they even wrote this test. And they're going to get three simple marks. You can get a reading, writing, and a math mark. And the mark is going to say at grade level, below grade level, or above grade level. They're not going to get anything else, no detailed analysis of who they are as a person or anything. And this data is not used to assess your kid. This data is used in, in collection of all data to help schools figure out where they rank in terms of funding, right. in terms of what they're supposed to allocate their budget to next year. So if, if that year kids did really well in the EQAO, then they might take some of that money away and put it somewhere else. And, you know, it's... And I know that happens in the States as well. It, it determines how much funding a school gets. And private schools in, in, in Toronto, they don't have to make their students write the test. So what they would do is they just get their brightest kids to write the test. They'll get like seven kids to write the test out of the whole school and then say, hey, our school has an average of 95% on the EQAO. And they'll use it for marketing. So, okay, so we've established... Traditional education is a scam, but you said something very interesting, which I which I really believe in, which is that it started off like many things with good intentions. Yes. I sort of feel like, and and by the way, we we're only on the cover of your book. Yeah, <laughs> there's 101 <laughs> chapters to go. Uh, let me just read some chapter titles, and then we'll just say, you know, a fear overcome is a strength acquired. Uh, I I know I'm happier wanting less than getting more. Okay, I'll just read those two, just to set the tone that we're gonna get into tone, yeah. into some stuff, but. But I really like this understanding this concept that, you know, 
you feel like the whole world is now arguing us versus them, mm -hmm. you know, whatever side of the spectrum you, you sit on. But, you know, I think, I think nobody or very few people enter into a policy or a belief system with bad intentions, yeah. you know, like, you know, take like you, like you gave this education with educate, you gave this example with education. So I could sound all smart saying, oh, education is ruining the lives of our children. But you have to respect the fact that someone started off with very good intentions. College might have very good intentions. Let's teach people like advanced engineering and medicine yeah. and all these things or the, the arts and stuff. But, and so let's fund everybody to go to college in, or let's back all their loans. Yeah. The, and then that's a great intention. Let's back all the loans, which, cause the 18 year olds normally can't get $250,000 in loans. Yeah. But the, the, sometimes there's bad outcomes, which is now someone graduates at 22 with $250,000 in loans is insane. I wouldn't even want to be in yeah. debt like that. And you know, or, well, that's a great motivator to get them to join the workforce very quickly. Well, but it's a bad motivator to get them to be entrepreneurs and innovators yeah. because they can't take a risk. They've got to start paying back their loans to, to the or the government will go yeah, after them. Exactly. So, so it kind of ruins uh, innovation mm -hmm. and, uh, and it increases income inequality because who then has the opportunity to create innovation and start companies, which is a true builder of wealth. Well, only the rich kids who didn't have the debt. Exactly. So that income inequality, again, good intention, but this amazingly large societally bad outcome of increasing income inequality. Like people wonder, why is there so much income inequality? I just gave you one example of a very clear example of why it could be huge. Yeah. And and start with good intentions. Same thing with, I don't know, almost same thing with film. You can get someone who has a beautiful film idea and then all of a sudden they, they start pitching it to different people and then when you pitch it to one person like hey I can make some connections but we're gonna have to tweak the story to make it more malleable and then the next person like we gotta we gotta water it down and then when you get to the person who can finance the film they're like we gotta make sure it works in China so now we gotta throw an A-list movie star behind it and then all of a sudden this pure raw authentic story that you originally started with has turned into this watered down pop culture you know basic ass film for everyone else to enjoy. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, you see a lot of examples, we've had a lot of people on talking about this happening in TV where, uh, you you know, all these great writers and directors make a great show, and then at the last minute, a bunch of MBAs come in and say, no, 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 we need to make these yeah. 73 changes. And then you find the best sitcoms, when you really look into them, didn't allow executives in the room yeah. and, and block the notes. But yeah. they had to have a certain clout to do that. I think it was first. The Simpsons, like the first one to have it in a contract, saying yeah. no outside uh, interference. Yeah, The Simpsons, but that was made by the 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 you know it was made by Matt Groening, but uh, James L. Brooks was the uh, top executive producer. He's the one who said no executives, and he came from uh, you know he made Mary Tyler Moore. He made all these amazing sitcoms for a decade earlier. Yeah, and of course The Simpsons. I don't even know if the Fox network would have survived without the Simpsons. Like yeah, that, that was exactly. the first hit that they had. Yeah. So a little bit of TV history, which has nothing to do with the rest of our conversation. <laughs> um, so, okay. We're go oh, oh, no, no. And we're not done with the cover yet. Unlearn. What are, what are we unlearning? And of course you quit being a school teacher. Tell us why. <laughs> so I, I was also making, I, I got into spoken word poetry after watching a, a spoken word poetry event. And I was like, this is super cool. It's really fun. I grew up in a, in a sick household, and uh, Sikhi is, is my heritage, and I learned hymns, uh, you know, hymns that were in Punjabi. And all the hymns 
were poetic and, and they were poetry. So I was rhyming in different languages since I was a child. And my mother used to bribe me with money to memorize these so she could, you know, put me in front of other uh, uncles and aunts and show off. Um, so I always had rhythm, um, connotation. I always had energy and a little bit of theatrics in the way I spoke and everything. And when I saw spoken word poetry for the first time or slam poetry, as some people see it, I fell in love with it. And I was like, A, I can do this. This is more exciting than just writing poetry in my notebook. And B, this would be a great way to meet girls. And uh, why is that? I feel like girls dig poetry. And, you know, seeing a guy on stage just looks, you know, it's, it was the simplest, cheapest way to be a rock star without having to spend 10 years learning the guitar. And You, uh, you know, that's interesting. So, so let's talk about spoken word poetry for a second. Yeah. So there's a couple of skills. First off, I'm not a fan of spoken word poetry because I prefer you add the musical component and now you have hip hop and rap and which I which which is I an love. evolution as well. Yeah. I mean, I I'm I'm talking about spoken word poetry versus reading a poetry book. Right. Okay. So so which is interesting because I think there's a huge difference in skills where I, where I do have respect on the spoken word side, poetry is a difficult art form all by itself. But yeah. then to do it spoken word, uh, I don't know how long it takes, but you need to have great stage presence. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to, you know, command a crowd and, and understand who's falling asleep, who's enjoying yeah. it, who's on texting on their phone. Yeah. And how do you, from the stage, kind of control what's happening? Like, yeah. How how hard was that for you? Like, what what were the skills that you didn't realize you needed to learn to beyond poetry to to be a good spoken word poet? Uh, controlling your breath. I think most people will. What even even if you know even if you're a rapper or you're a singer or anything, most people will rehearse in the garage, rehearse in their bedroom by themselves. Um, they'll rehearse on the stage during sound check to an empty room by themselves, and then all of a sudden they'll be in a room full of people. It's a lot noisier, so now they're having trouble hearing themselves, so now they have to be a little bit louder. And they also lose their perception of how fast and slow they're going. So and because they're nervous, they go very, very, very quickly, and they speak really quickly, and then they, they lose their breath, and they can no longer perform it the way they performed it when nobody was around. Would you have to consciously tell yourself, okay, slow it down, let's just slow it yeah. down? Really tell yourself, slow it down. I mean, and then as I got into music, I learned that you know what they make you do is... Uh, they make you run on the treadmill and perform. You know, they make mm -hmm. you they make you run around the block and perform, and see if you can maintain your breath because that's they? what it is. Um, well, so I'm talking about you know reading up with different artists and and finding out who like for example Outkast. You know, they were they had a musical mentor. You know, in L and it was L. A. Reed when he had LaFace Records, mm -hmm. and he would challenge them to run around the block and then come and spit 50 bars, um, and then it became the kind of the uh, the metaphor for going from amateur to pro, which was to say, you know, get, get them to do their verse on the treadmill, which was, you know, can you perform while you're running your fastest? And that's all of a sudden when you start watching stage performers who don't use any backtracking, who don't use anything, and they're just, like Beyonce is a perfect example. You go, go watch her Netflix special and just pay attention to the fact that she's never out of breath. And she is dancing, and she is screaming, and she is she's never losing her breath. She's never coughing. There's no issues. And I've seen her live, and I'm just like, whoa, like the amount of shape you have to be in. But that's four months, four to six months worth of rehearsals and, and training yourself to do it. So the number one thing I would remind people, if you want to go on stage, slow it down because you will run out of breath. I think the second thing is 
you know, before you can, you, you've clocked in enough hours on stage, don't worry about the audience. Right now, share an experience, you know. Uh, the beauty of spoken word poetry is they get to hear it from the poet. The delivery, how you say the poetry is 90% of the magic. What you say is the other 10%. And uh, I liken it to. What do you mean? Because like, do you mean like kind of just the cadence and the rhythm? Like, why why is the the actual story and the content only ten percent? Um, because if I wrote, even for example, when I wrote this book, you know, for you to read it, you're gonna read it in whatever voice you think it sounds like. You're gonna you're gonna emphasize whatever words you feel are important, unless we we bolded them or what have you. Now, if you hear me say them, I might focus on different words and I might focus on different points and I might pause at different times and all these little subtle things mean all the difference. So what I always tell people, because so often now that I've become popular, people are sending me poetry. And I always tell them, I'm saying, hey, you're sending me a picture of a pie and you're asking me what it tastes like. Hmm. You know, it looks good, but I don't know what it tastes like. I don't know what the magic is. And I think realizing that, like where I would read a piece of poetry, um, and I'm thinking even even in song lyrics, I read, um, uh, I think it's Broken Souls by Radiohead. And it's just these fragmented sentences. And I'm just like, this makes no sense. But then when you hear him sing it, it's fragmented because he's so distraught that he can't finish his sentences. Mm. And that just adds so much more context to it. It gives it so much more life. So reading about somebody's heartbreak versus hearing them speak about it, it's it's almost a whole new dimension. You know, it's like experiencing this person in, 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 in 3D. So I think if you're new and, and you're here to share your poetry, you know, Share it the way you felt when you wrote it and let people have that experience because that that vulnerability, uh, that visceral experience is what's going to make people connect with you. Because what you're doing is you're sharing your story and in turn empowering people to figure out their own. So so when you left, so you, you, you quit being a teacher. Did you quit or were you fired? Like what? Oh, yeah. So this, this, is, this is the good stuff. What happened was I had no intentions of ever quitting. I'm like, I'm going to do this on the side. This is going to be fun. This is a great icebreaker to meet people. Uh, it's a cool way to keep life interesting uh, outside of my nine to five. Um, and it took a life of its own. So I first started with spoken word and I put up a couple poems and I would go to a couple readings, coffee shops, all of that stuff. And then when I kind of got not so inspired by the scene and by not inspired, I wasn't winning any of the competitions and feeling like I wasn't getting my justice. Uh, I started focusing on putting stuff online. So... I started doing spoken word poetry with just music in the background as as ambiance. And then what ended up happening was I started picking hip-hop beats and then the spoken word started to click onto the beat. And that's how I realized that I was never really doing spoken word poetry. I was just rapping without music. Hmm. And I began rapping and then putting out music, putting out lyrics videos and putting out very small uh, productions, you know, handheld Canon cameras and just shooting music videos and and putting them out. And in the South Asian world, nobody that looked like me, I mean, in the, in the world, nobody that looked like me was doing this. Uh, in the South Asian world, there were no brown people doing anything on YouTube back then. And um, I just slowly became a little bit of a local celebrity. None of this was monetized. None of this was making me any money. Um, and I didn't care. I, I, this was me. It was a hobby. This was a great way to crash a birthday party and everybody already knew who I was. So I, I was welcome. A great way to to get into clubs. Just, just purely selfish stuff. But... Um, my my subject matter was I, I used to get more and more serious with my subject matter and try to use it to communicate to the world. So I talked about uh, what was happening in the world, what I saw in the news, anything I found interesting. And 
eventually, the music started getting me gigs, just small gigs, getting flown out to Edmonton, getting flown out to New York, getting flown out different places. Because the people would find you on YouTube find and me say, on YouTube, we're throwing an event and we would love for you to be there. And the farther you go from home, the bigger of a deal you become. Hmm. So I'd, I'd get flown out. I wouldn't get paid, but I'd, I'd get the free plane ticket. And to me, you know, that first year, I think it was 2009, I probably sat in an airplane more than I ever sat in my entire life before that. Mm. You know, before that was probably three trips. And um, that started building some momentum. And now I was getting recognized regularly, but again, still not earning. And then I connected with this music producer who I started making music with, and he was all in. He was just like, I'm all in. We're, we're going we're gonna to figure out how to make money doing this. I've already made some money in Japan working with these hip-hop artists. I'm going to get you connected with them. We'll make some good money and you, you can quit your job. And I was also at this point, um, it's 2009 and 2010, I was also, uh, you know, as a young guy living at home, you know, I played the stock market, lost a crap ton of money in 2008. Um, really? Why? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 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 I mean, we watched the big short for that one, but uh, so I had debt. I had a lot of debt, and I, and I was it was manageable debt because I had a salary. So I was when he came to me, he goes, "I got us a record deal. I got you 120 grand, and all you got to do is write 10 songs, and and we're set." And I was like, "This is awesome!" And I immediately, and again, I looked at it not as an opportunity to to explore my artistic career. I looked at this, looked at this as my the Calvary has come to save the day. That 120 grand is going to wipe out the 40 grand of debt I had. I'd have 80 grand to play with. Plus, I can be a weirdo artist all day and go for long walks and be inspired. Uh, so I quit my job. I quit my job, moved out of my house. I had, a, I had an investment property, another wise decision a younger version of me made. Kicked my tenant out, moved into there, and started making music. And um, it took about a year of denial for me to realize that no money was ever coming. And I was just digging myself deeper into debt. Why do you think? I mean, I've seen a bunch of your, you know, your latest videos got like what two and a half million views, and yeah. it's a rap video, and it's really professionally done. It's great, yeah. and uh, you're now. a great rapper. And uh, why, why, what, what was going, what was going on? What do you think is the dynamic where you weren't? What was the next step to break out? You think? Well, back then, I didn't. I had no idea how anybody in music made money. I had mm -hmm. no idea. I thought you get signed to a record company and they just hit you over the head with a bag of money and that was it. I had a very simplistic view of all of this. And I didn't, you know, I didn't have a lawyer. I didn't, you know, the same way I did no due diligence with whatever stocks I bought and I lost all my money, I did no due diligence when it came to this deal. I just got an email, PDF sent to me, signed the paper and just was waiting for the money to come in. It was, you know, I wasn't manipulated by a master. I was just told what I wanted to hear. And I was thirsty to leave what I considered a normal life to, to have this better. And I was going through some transitions. I lost one of my best friends. Uh, we had a falling out. Uh, a girl I was dating for a year and a half, she she moved across halfway across the world and broke up with me. Um, plus the financial hardships, plus me seeing artists and feeling like they were more free than me. In the beginning, I always kind of pitied artists. I was like, you guys are all broke and you guys can't make a living and you guys have to take stupid gigs just to pay your bills. At least I'm good with this teacher stuff. And I was living at home. I didn't really have any big bills back then. And the next thing I know, you know, from the end of 2010 to the end of 2011, I just accrued much more debt. And now I'm sitting there, $80,000 in debt. This $120,000 check doesn't exist. I have no way of making money. Why? Why didn't it exist? Because they were. It was just not. It, I, from what I understand now, because I never went too deep into it, because I, I was in recovery mode and I didn't have enough time to stare at the broken pieces. Um, 
I don't think the deal ever existed. I think he really believed in my talents and he thought he could leverage it eventually to get some sort of money. And what I think he was trying to do was borrow like 25 grand from a friend and use that on me and then borrow like money. like an advance. Mm. Yeah, like kind of create a little, of a, a little bit of a Ponzi scheme, mm. I guess. And eventually somebody would actually come with the 120. Mm. But it probably, but it wasn't there at that time. Mm. Uh, he just doctored, he, he, somebody paid him five grand once to, to make a beat. Mm. And he just doctored that. And it looked official because he just changed the number and he changed the name on the, on the contract. Um, I don't think it was malicious, but I think once he realized he got exposed, instead of having an adult conversation with me, he took off and he just went into hiding. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I of course the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income? by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love you know turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. 
So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely got to use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. So now you're, you've quit your job. You've got the debt. Were you, I mean, and this kind of, you know, before we now, before we get into the title of like why you called it unlearn, I think there's a lot of things in this book that are related to trying to be great at something and, and perhaps, you know, along the way dealing with the various disappointments that can result disappointment financially disappointment that people aren't looking at you the way you would have liked in terms Mm -hmm. of validation disappointment in terms of the skill acquisition might not be coming as quickly as you want, uh, various disappointments. And I think we're all disappointed in, in life, particularly the harder we work for something, it means it's worth working for. It means it's difficult. It means we're going to suck for a while because it's worth getting good at. Uh, uh, like for instance, I just randomly opened to a chapter, chapter 20 here. You can be whatever the fuck you want. So it strikes me that maybe people were telling you, you know, maybe while you're writing this, you're thinking, maybe people were telling you, no, oh, you can't be, you can't be a rapper. You can't be a musician. You need this, 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 or you need to be in LA or New York or whatever. And 
So t- tell me what this this chapter yeah, means. I think you know definitely when we think about you know you know Biggie dedicating a song to the teachers that said he wouldn't amount to much. You always think about and I, and I always thought to myself of like man I know a lot of teachers. Teachers don't say that to kids. Um, and I mean nobody said to me like you're not good enough. You can't do it. What what they do is they do a lot more passive aggressively. They'll be like, can can you make money doing that? You know. Is that something, you know, don't you think you should lean into something more realistic? What if you get like a full-time gig and just do that on the side? Like a lot of, you know, slowly chipping away at your dreams and trying or, to say these or, types or, of things. Or the worst is, you know, really congratulate you. Is you're really brave that you're trying this. <laughs> yeah, really brave that you're trying this. And what happened was when I got to that $80,000 of debt and realized that, shit, I don't have any way to pay this. Um, I have a mortgage payment coming up. Um and I have no outs. I don't know what to do. Um, it was the scariest situation of my life. And I isolated myself from everybody. I didn't talk to anybody. I avoided people. Because I not only owed the bank money, I owed friends money. I owed people money like that I cared about. I didn't want to be that guy who, who ran away. Somebody just ran away on me. Somebody that I considered a brother at this point. And I didn't want to be that guy. But I ended up spending two months in, no, sorry, I ended up spending two weeks in bed just taking a bunch of, whatever I could find and just medicating and, and avoiding the world. And that wasn't helping. And there were a lot of good friends in my life at that point that weren't, that were saying good things to me. Like, you're going to have to sell this place. Like, you can't keep these payments up. You can't even afford to rent this out again because you need an income. And I would be like, see, you don't believe in me. You guys mm-hmm. don't believe in me. Or like, hey, you know, we saw in his behavior that he wasn't worth trust trusting and you knew that and you you ignored that and me being like why are you blaming me for this this isn't my fault and really pushing back uh and until i eventually had my had some rest had some time to grieve over this and then finally had my adult moment where i was like no one's gonna save the day i gotta figure this out and i am sick of hearing the stupid motivational quotes because tumblr's not helping me today and and I'm going to be honest, I heard about this guy named James Altiger who got rich and then went broke and got rich again and then went broke and now lives a life of minimalism. And as I said, I read uh, I read your story, then I read you know your article on self-publishing. Uh, you know, I read about your nomadic ways. I read about your minimalism ways before the word minimal was even cool. And I was like, this is the first guy who's just honest about it and who's mm-hmm. not embarrassed. And that was one of the first steps, you know, in me just telling people, like, I fucked up. I don't know what I did, but I, you know, I don't know what to do, but I fucked up and I sold the place. You know, I I moved back home with my parents. I listened to a lot of I told you so's and I I ate it. I I had to take these consequences. Um, I focused on taking personal responsibility. Even if somebody betrayed me, even if somebody lied to me, I didn't see any value anymore in feeling like a victim. I think for a long time, I enjoyed the pity that I got. I enjoyed people feeling sorry for me. But now I got to a point where people's pity isn't going to pay the bills. You know, people's empathy isn't going to help me move further right now. I need to take all the responsibility I can. You know, it's, it's interesting because you, you look at stories of successful people or, you know, people who are striving for success. No one ever says, man, I was, I, what, what really made me a success was being a victim. Yeah. <laughs> I really took that victim thing and just took it to the top. Yeah, I, I no ran one, with it. Everyone <laughs> felt sorry for me and they just hit me with bags of money. Yeah, like no one, victimhood is never a strategy. Yeah. So, so. It's uh, addictive, but it's not. It's, right, it's yeah. addictive because it's a way to relieve stress. Like you're feeling the stress like, 
am I a failure? Because that's really stressful. Oh, no, I'm just a victim. So that relieves the stress. Like I was a good guy. They all lied to me. Right. I didn't do anything wrong here. Until I had my adult moments, which was like, yes, you did. You you listened to a person's words and you ignored their actions. So so so, what does this chapter mean? You can be whatever the fuck you want. Uh, so this is the point where I started coming up with ideas and having these little internal voices in my head trying to talk me out of it. You know, you come up, and this is everybody. You know, you say, I'm going to go to the gym. And then two minutes later, your mind's like, ah, should we eat breakfast first? Maybe we need to buy new shoes before we actually go. Is our gym membership even, you know, renewed? And we And we say all this shit and then we talk ourselves out of it. And the reality is be mindful of those voices talking yourself out of it. And you can legitimately be whatever the fuck you want to be. If you want to be a rapper, then go ahead and be a rapper. If you want to be an aerospace engineer, you can be that. You can be whoever you want to be. And your biggest obstacle is yourself and the voices that you've carried along. You know, whether it was somebody that said something to you when you were a child and that stuck with you and you didn't understand it when you heard it as a child and now you've just carried it into adulthood. It's about learning about yourself. And, and that's why the book's called Unlearn is because it's about letting go of old, stale ideas that we've just been carrying around as baggage. And again, those ideas, uh, I'm fixated on this, but those ideas had good intentions. Your parents yeah. wanted you to be comfortable. They wanted you to be safe. Yes. Okay, the best way to, for for you to be safe don't try to um, be a trapeze artist. Yeah. <laughs> like you want to be a trapeze artist? How about you just play soccer at school yeah. and, and then study hard and be a lawyer? Yeah, because <laughs> my parents came to this country in the 70s and what they understood made money were doctors, lawyers, and engineers. Mm -hmm. And we always make the joke that that's one job now, doctor, lawyer, engineer. Right. You know, mm -hmm. and I feel like any child of an immigrant from anywhere around the world have had this experience where you know, but they have the best intentions. They're not sitting there like, how do we crush our child's spirits today? <laughs> They're saying, how do right. we maintain our bloodline and thrive in this new country that we barely understand? I think it's an important thing to understand to also avo avoid the victim thing. Like, if you understand that even if you don't know why somebody planted some education in you that, that might be stale, they probably had good intention doing it. Yeah. Like, you don't have to understand why. You could just say, look, they had good intentions, but now I need to have an adult moment and do what I want to do. And to your to your point of like anyone could be a rapper. Not everyone's gonna be, you know, Eminem, but anyone could play some music, write some poetry, good or bad, and rap to it. Yeah. And then you could do it again the next time, and you're probably a tiny bit better than the first time, and so on. And if you have fun making it, then you win. If 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 the reward comes through the work. And you know, and you're just enjoying the rainbow, and you're not even thinking about a pot of gold. Then you've already won. That's but, what ninety percent of the people haven't even realized yet. And and you know, somebody can say, "Well, but you also just said aerospace engineer. Like clearly, you need uh, education." But then you look at like Elon Musk. You know, people think, "Oh, the guy just hired a bunch of physicists." No, he read for like years yeah. physics books and engineering books to to kind of know who to hire and evaluate the designs and evaluate how to hire people and and you know he's he's in there every day yeah. you know working on this so, and it's such a beautiful time now because right now your portfolio is worth more than your resume so if you want to be you know a, a graphic designer you don't have to go to school for graphic design you just have to make dope stuff and then show people your dope stuff and then they'll hire you to do the dope stuff they're not asking for the degree anymore it's funny because i have five kids yeah. and explaining this to kids uh, is they don't believe it. They they don't. They say no, no, no. You need the degree for the first 
couple of jobs. And I'm like, no, I've even, even your kids? Yeah. Even yeah. with your story, uh, yeah, with everything I, you do? I wrote a book, 40 Alternatives to College. <laughs> and and I even go to my kids and say, I will pay you cash instead of going to college. And look here, I send them articles. Here, Google, and I don't argue with them. I just I, I Google no longer looking at degrees. Ernst and Young, the accounting firm, no longer looking at degrees. Microsoft, no longer looking at degrees. Who's looking at degrees? And they're like, no, no, no. If you want to get a job, they're going to ask at some point, and you're going to lose to the person who has a, wow, a degree. It sounds like the university's got little lobby lobbyists working well, in the elementary school. Well, schools. that's just it. It's a, the student loan industry started yeah. with good intentions. Let's help students get a higher education. Is a trillion dollar, multi trillion dollar yeah. industry now. So the 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 force is strong in terms of you know getting into kids' heads from a, a debt. Debt is a great motivator. It's, it's a it's a better motivator than a whip. You yeah, know, you want to get people to work. Yeah, you want to get people to work. Put them in debt. Yeah, and yeah. and and so so from the teachers to the guidance counselors to the college counselors, like it's all this and and they're and of course they're conditioned. And look, you saw this probably as a school teacher. They they're conditioned to uh, uh, pay much more attention to their peers than their parents because they're, you know, 70,000 years ago, someone my age was dead. Yeah. <laughs> and they, I, I, they need to bond with their peers more than with their parents if they want to survive the, the lions and the tigers. Yeah. And our DNA is the same as then. Yeah. So they're not listening to me. Their, their friends are like worried about their SAT scores. So they're worried about their SAT scores. And, yeah. and that just happens. And that was the thing even when I taught the third grade. is like some of these kids would be focusing in October about that EQAO test. And then the parents would be like, yeah, so they want me to ask you to give them their prep book early. And I'm sitting there I'm like, you're a kid. Like literally, this is inconsequential. This is, they're testing me. And I tell Agle, they're testing me more than they're testing you. You're just going to be a stat on a sheet. And... The thing is, it's it's the template. There's been this template, which is do well in school, get a good job, then you can find a great mate, you can have children, and you can pressure them to do well in school so they can get a good job and they can find a good mate. And that's why it's, this book's called Unlearn. It's like, hey, let's let's ex just even entertain the idea that there's another way by letting go of this script that hasn't been updated for decades. Right, and you know, you can be whatever the fuck you want. I think it's a... a an interesting concept in a lot of ways in every in every industry again and again i'm talking about industries worth learning so so there's no tic-tac-toe industry because tic-tac-toe is not really interesting to learn there's those no, but there could be it, well you never know maybe but it's so there's there's a forced win for whoever moves first so it's it's a little too easy but for something like rap or tennis, or investing, or entrepreneurship, it's so difficult, the skills, that A, you have to be okay with failing and sucking for a while, yes. and B, you're going to have gatekeepers who tell you, we don't like you. Yes. So, so it won't be the most successful people in the industry, it'll be like the second tier, because they want to be the first tier, and you're potentially going to Pass them. So the second tier of hard industries hate the bottom tiers. Yes, yes. Because they're they still don't know where they are. Whereas the first tiers, they could be gracious and or you never reach them or whatever. But you know, like like books and and you originally self published this book. Books is a great one. And in the, in the U.S., there's like four or five 
big publishing companies, it's very easy for five random people who had a bad day that day to say no to you. And then you used to be able to think, well, okay, I guess I can't write a book. But now you wrote this book without a publisher and you self-published it originally. Yes. And, I, and I, again, I want to shout out my friend Balraj Tillon for putting me onto you. He, he just, for your email list, he just signed me up. That's and, really funny. And, and, I had no idea. Yeah, and that and that was the thing. And, and even when you know, I got the first email about booking this, and I sent it to him, and he was just like, "That's so beautiful that things are full circle," you know. And and for him, and and again, he's a great friend of mine. And he, when I needed money, he put money in my hands. And he was one of the reasons that I called up and said, "Look, I owe you money. I'm not going to avoid giving you money." And I'm proud to say I was able to pay him back and not have any damage in our friendship. And it's been motivating to prove these type of people right. You know, and being able to shut them out on the podcast after. That's that's great. I mean, and look, and look how it worked out for you. You self-published this book. You became a writer. You have you, no no music label maybe is uh, throwing a bag of money at you, but you have well, great I mean, rap now, videos now on they are. YouTube. Now they are. So, well, I that's mean, good. Yeah, that's well, the thing. Everything starts, and, and that's been the new challenge where it's like, oh, my new, my new challenge is kind of like the end of Scott Pilgrim where he's like, you have to face yourself. Like my new challenge is like Humble the Rapper just got a deal and the paperwork's in an email and it's legit and the head of their legal department has been a friend for five years, so I know it's pretty good. But then everyone's like, well, Humble the Author is doing really well. Focus on the book and then do the music later. And then me, the kid in me, is just like, no, we're going to do it all and let's just see what happens and have yeah. as much fun as possible. You have to do it all. Yeah. You can't do one without the other. Well, and, that, and that's what I did with this advance check. I was like, oh, now I can afford to, to shoot a cinematic video and not worry if it gets 2.5 million views or if it gets 10,000 views. And now it's a labor of love and I can have fun with it. And then the irony of that is people can see the fun and then more opportunities find me because of that. Yeah, and it did, did the uh, record deal or music deal you get, did that come from the YouTube videos? Um, yeah, so first in 2014, I got uh, I worked on a track with Lily, and then that track blew up, and then we got deal offers from everybody, but they were clearly uneducated on the YouTube space, and they thought we were one-hit wonders, and they didn't realize, like, no, we, we built a big trampoline that we can bounce anything off of, and the platform is what brings it value. So, you know, the la your label isn't going to do that. So all those talks fell, uh, they fell short. And then most recently, I've been partnering with uh, some of the streaming services. Uh, so, you know, the great people at Apple, like, you know, you want to do something exclusive, you want to you want to work on something, we can get you on these these playlists because I ended up doing an Apple commercial two years ago. So I got kind of brought into that family. Um, there's a big uh, streaming service out in India called Savin that's getting a lot of American investment now. Um, they're really working to kind of bridge the cultures of, of South Asia and North America. And a guy like me is a perfect fit for that because... I'm exotic everywhere I go. I stand out there. I stand out here. And um, so, I grew up wanting to rap with Nas. I didn't grow up rapping in a different language. So, you know, now all these things are possible. And as my my following increases and as I become more of a name in the mainstream ethos, whether it's for the book or my other music, you know, everything's starting to make more sense for them to, to get involved. You know what's interesting to me there is I think a lot of people – don't know when to do hard things and don't know when to do, they should focus on easy things. And so a hard thing would be, let's make a lot of money as a rapper before we really have the skills in the audience. Mm -hmm. That would be a really hard thing. Yeah. An easy thing is, okay, I didn't get the deal I wanted, but I could still today improve as a musician. Yes. And there's a lot of ways I can improve as a musician. I can learn an instrument, I can sing, I can write, better lyrics, I could 
rap better. I can learn to breathe better. I can perform better. So there's lots of ways to improve and things you can actually do. Um, and then what was previously hard, when it becomes, e if you keep doing that, what was previously hard becomes easy or you find another direction to go. Like you wrote this book. So you gave, you diversified your opportunities to, to find something easy. And, and, I think and, that's and all the these seeds were planted so long ago. It's like when I wrote the book and I self-published it and I, I looked at the economics of it, I was like, oh, wait, so these are print to order. So now I don't have to keep boxes and boxes in my place and ship them out individually. Somebody orders that off Amazon. I just get the, I get the royalties and, and, and we're straight. Now also I can use, and I crowdfunded the book initially. Now I love this crowdfunding uh, process because it takes the guesswork out of things. So I started crowdfunding my shows. So I said, hey, Edmonton, I want to come perform, but I'm not going to even begin exploring uh, a venue or setting the show up until we pre-sell 50 tickets. And now come on my, my Indiegogo and, and here we go. For $15, you get a ticket. For $35, you get a ticket and a signed book. You know, for uh, $100, you get a ticket, a signed book, and a t-shirt. For $500, your company presents Humble the Poet live in Edmonton. So, so, so by the way, and, and just to mention, you crowdfunded the advance on when you self-published this book yeah. too. So people don't, I think there's a kind of a good tactical thing here. People don't realize crowdfunding is not about raising money so then you can do your thing. Crowdfunding is really about it's 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 about building that first customer base too, that first loyal customer base. People don't realize there's a there's a human behind the funding, and uh, it's not just these mysterious random people paying you and you never interact with them again. Those are your first customers, and you know what crowdfunding proves is that you have customers. It, it proves you have customers, and it's also a lot of growth. So for me, you know, I didn't want to do it because it was like I'm asking for help and. Again, at this point uh, in, in my evolution, I was way too proud to do so. And the, the moment I was able to admit to people that I am struggling, so when people are like, hey, oh my God, I saw you know, I saw a cool picture of you on social media doing something cool. I was like, yeah, but I, I did that for free. And I'm still struggling financially. I had to move back home, but I'm figuring it out. And I really was figuring it out. Crowdfunding let me put it out there and be like, hey, you guys, the top comments on all my posts are you should write a book. I don't know how to write a book. I don't know how to make a book. Um, I don't want to try to chase a deal because if you're chasing the deal, you've lost all your leverage and you're going to get a really bad deal. Well, and again, it's chasing the deal is doing the hard thing doing instead the hard of backing thing. up and writing the book, which exactly. is the easy thing. So I think in addition to finding your customer base, it actually made them all stakeholders. So it's right. like, I don't know how to do this. I need your guys' help to do this. And I, the, the largest single contribution I got was $1,500. So 300 people donated. So it wasn't a lot of people. It was 300 people. I did a six-week campaign. 300 people donated, uh, contributed, and I raised over $26,000. Okay, but I, I'll, I'll say two things. One is, in the U.S., a $26,000 advance for a book is probably four or five times higher than the average first-time author advance for a book. 1,000%. Yeah. And the second thing is, 300 customers, I think the average book in the U.S., the average published book from a traditional mainstream publisher sells 300 copies. So you already kind of were exceeded yeah. the, the expectations if you traditionally published. And, just and again, this and, that, and that came from me. I was still, you know, even though I wasn't earning any money in 2011, I was still putting out art. 
And I was still building a relationship with my community and letting them know I put out dope stuff. And, you know, at this point, because I thought I had money coming in from this invisible deal that never existed, I was putting out my music for free download. I wasn't even, it wasn't even on iTunes. It was just like, hey, go to humbletopoet.com and download this for free. So I had built a following. And it was also the, the golden years of social media where, you know, I had 60,000 followers on Facebook. 60,000 people saw the message. You know, this was before they... they yeah, made, now... Three people would see the message. Maybe, yeah, or maybe <laughs> unless three people, you boosted it. Yeah, unless you boost, and then five people will see it. Yeah. So it was. It, so what ended up happening was you're right, and I did the math, and I was like, all right, for for three hundred people to 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 want to contribute, you know, maybe up to thirty thousand people will have to see the messaging, and I just went on a one percent thing, and and I pushed it and pushed it, and the largest contributions I got were from either people I had only known for less than six months. Uh, and the, the single largest contribution was $1,500 from a Harvard professor um, who I had never met. And uh, that, that 50, you know, in Indiegogo, you can give a little threshold. So if you give me, I thought it was like, you give me five bucks, you'll get a digital copy of the book. Uh, I think it was $20, you'll get a physical copy. And I just kept going up. And I'm like, if you give me 1500 bucks and you live in North America, I'll come to your house and perform. So I actually went to his house and I performed for a bunch of Harvard professors and uh, he gave me a tour of the campus, and then when he showed me his office, he had a big sign in there from Andy Warhol that said, uh, business is the greatest type of art. And he goes, I contributed to your campaign because I, I got so happy to see an artist taking business into their own hands. Hmm. You know, I had no choice at that point because I was broke and I had to figure out how to do it. But it, it, I realized I was acquiring all these little breadcrumbs from so many people and getting to sit in a class, a Harvard business class, and just being like, okay, I'm having these are the resources that are worth more than money. This is somebody I can lean on because he crowdfunds and he crowdsources, but he does it for NASA and he doesn't raise money. He raises knowledge. He NASA calls him to solve a math equation and and he puts that out to his network of nerds to solve it. And then he gives them twenty five grand if they solve the problem. And then everybody's happy in that equation. Were, were you were, were you nervous in the seconds before performing at his house that oh my god this guy, you know crowd you know wants me to perform here. He's got all these Harvard professors. He, he gave me $1,500. What if I perform and he's, and I just look at their faces and they're all just like, what the heck did we just fund? Yeah. I, I think the, the beautiful part about it was he said, if you, if you come stay at my house. So I, I stayed with him for two days before the actual performance. And then I realized he's a big hip hop fan. And he's been flexing his Harvard muscles for the longest time. So he's like, yeah, I got Nas two weeks ago to do a key- keynote speech. I got Rick Rubin to come out here. So it's like, oh, huh. so you're, you're a hip-hop fan who's been, you know, using your resources to bring, to have the coolest experiences at your school. So uh, I realized, so that took a lot of pressure off of it. And um, his entire team, everybody he brought to, to, to the house, it, it just turned to a big, fun oh, uh, evening. So everybody was super cool. And So and again, like, kind of... Uh, not necessarily avoiding hard things, but knowing, you know, when to back off from 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 the difficult things in order to do the easy things to improve, so that the difficult things become easier. That kind of experience was like a, a compass leading you to, you know, all these experiences where you, uh, you know, getting crowdfunded for a book, performing for these Harvard professors, one whom's, you know had all these contacts in the industry yeah. kind of like not necessarily taking the easy path but understanding which path was more important for you at which time yeah. was a real critical part of the success here and it was leaning into the fear because i realized the only reason up until you know up until that moment that two weeks after when i got out of bed 
I had always been about cutting corners. You know, I had the academic ability. I had the academic ability to be a doctor, and and it, and it would have gotten done, and it, and it probably. It wouldn't have killed me, as, as some of my friends describe med school as being self-inflicted torture. I think I would have been able to, to, to make it happen. And um, I had always sold myself short and used my intelligence to try to, to take the easy way. And I realized the easy way was always away from the scary way. It was just, you know, just a, a sharp left away from anything that scared me or felt uncomfortable. And all growth exists in our, outside our comfort zone. So now I... I looked down on struggling artists. When I was working as a teacher and I met artists who were full-time artists, I'm like, I don't envy you. You guys have to do the weirdest things to pay your bills. It sucks. Y'all can't eat out today. You know, I'm, I'm in a better situation and I'm comfortable and I like it. Life turned me into that. You know, I became a starving artist not by choice. I became, I didn't adopt minimalism. I became a minimalist because I, I had to get rid of everything. You know, and then hearing your story about having a backpack and if you buy one thing, you got to get rid of another, like realizing that that was my budget. You know, it wasn't my philosophy. Right. It was you're only going to buy something when something breaks and you have to do it. And, and budgeting in that at least once a month, you're going to have to swipe that credit card for something that hurts that you didn't plan to. Maybe you went out to dinner with somebody and, and the bill got bigger than, than you wanted it to be. Or maybe you got to catch a flight that you didn't think you'd have to. Or maybe you got to make an investment in yourself. And I, you know, I tried other things that, in, that just that stuck against the wall. I tried to start a website, a little social community for the South Asian community. I spent 15 grand on that out of that condo money. That all went to mm-hmm. waste, mm-hmm. you know. And um, I'd worked on a couple of other things as well. But then a lot of the seeds I planted slowly started to grow. So once I started getting into music, and, and my name started getting a little bit bigger. Um, I had a book under my belt, and it was independently published, and I was selling exactly three copies a day. Every, every single week, my, my, uh, I was making about seven bucks a, bu- seven bucks a book, and I, my, my royalties every week were about $28, $21, that range. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, in combination with making three $400 a gig at the time, in combination with, uh, you know, putting words together, writing a really good grant application and maybe getting $3,000 to, to make my next album uh, in combination with um, working with popular YouTubers out in LA who wanted to get into music but had no talent, so they'd pay me to write their stuff. Oh, really? You know, yeah, so just finding every single avenue of trying to get money and learning this and, and meeting this, a local rapper in LA, him being like, look, bro, it's not about what you do on stage. It's about how you make people feel and then you sell your t-shirts afterwards. And he goes, I make more money selling merch than even the headliners make. And he goes, "Have make sure you have merchandise. Give people something to walk home with. And I always felt t-shirts were a ripoff. So I, I used the book. And the book, you know, had a great profit margin for me, but it also held value. And then slowly my shows stopped being people there for the music and it became people there for the book. And the book, and this is still independent. And then when I got on to the show called Canada Reads, where I was a local Canadian celebrity at this point, and they had me, you know, read five books, pick one I like, and just debate four other celebrities about who their favorite book was, I ended up winning the debate. And this is like, this is like Survivor for books. And it's like, it's on the radio and it's a big deal in Canada, even though I hadn't heard of it. What, what books were you debating for? I, I read, a, I chose, I ended up choosing a book. So they sent me like three boxes of books and Every single book was about the immigrant experience or, or racism. And then there was one book in there called 15 Dogs. And this book was about two Greek gods in a bar in Toronto having a simple debate. Does being smart make you miserable? And then they end up having a bet. 
saying whoever wins the bet, the other one's going to be their slave for 200 years. Uh, we're going to make another animal super smart, and let's see if any of them can die happy. And uh, they go to a local uh, animal shelter and give 15 dogs human intelligence. And the entire book is about 15 super intelligent dogs roaming around Toronto, and you're just following them until they die. And it was short, and my favorite things are my city of Toronto and dogs. I love dogs. So I, was, I picked it because I, like, I actually like these things. Whereas all my competition, uh, there was an opera singer, there was an, a, a war veteran, uh, there was an actress, um, and there was um, a, a radio host. They all picked books that reflected them. Hmm. You know, the, the radio host was in the LGBTQ community. She picked a book about that. Uh, one of the singers was uh, uh, of native descent. She picked a book about a native woman. So they, got, they really were advocating for their own stories where I was just picking a book that I thought was the most interesting. That's also like the craziest book concept I've ever heard. It's, it's uh, dope, I'm going to read that, 15 dollars. You'll love it. it. Huh? It's, it's written by Andre Alexis. And the book had already, and I didn't, cause I, I didn't know the book world at this point, the book had already won like a boatload of awards. It won the Giller Prize, which is like a, like a Pulitzer in Canada. Mm-hmm. So this guy had already accumulated at least a million dollars in literary prizes i didn't know any of this i picked it because it was thin and looked interesting and um i won the debate and i I used a lot of my teacher talk i talked i I went in depth and i didn't i never got heated when people insulted the book because it wasn't my book everybody else got like one person had a book on global warming and they said if you don't you can't yeah if you don't (laughs) like this book then you must not believe in global warming and i was like or i care about global warming but i feel like this book is a very boring way to talk about it you know and really being able to separate that so i won and once i i won that show the publishing industry looked me up and like oh he already has a book under his belt you know maybe we can capitalize off this and sign him for a new book so i spoke with all the publishers all the big companies but just the canadian versions and they all said hey we want to sign you to a book deal and i'm like hey i wrote a book that's doing very well independently It's, it's been keeping me afloat for the last two years you guys want to uh, republish it and bounce it off your trampoline and let's see where it goes. And they all said no. Hmm. And then at this point, I had done some other stuff as well as that show got me discovered by a couple of uh, ad agencies. So I started doing some ads for companies. I did an Apple commercial. It was very fun. It was an iPhone commercial. And I did spoken word poetry. Did they, I'm just curious, did they pay well for that? They pay well. They right, paid, good. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, I, yeah, they paid me enough. I was living very simply, but they gave, so they gave me enough money to live for two and a half years. That was great. You know, off my simple minimalist lifestyle. So for me, I was like, hey, I'm good. I'm going to reward myself by making music. And then I started, so when the publishers weren't willing to republish the book, I just said, that's cool. You know, good luck to you guys. I'm going to just keep making my music. And then uh, the biggest bookstore in Canada, the biggest book chain, Indigo, Chapters Indigo, they reached out. Um, after one of their executives saw me on TV and he was at a restaurant that one of my like childhood friends owns. And he was just like, oh, this guy's interesting. And that guy's like, I know him. And then they connected us and they're like, hey, we would love to republish this book as is. Like, just send us a PDF and we'll just change the cover. Because I had built the book. I, uh, somebody in my community taught me how to use Adobe InDesign. So I built the book. I put the chapters, the fonts, mm-hmm. everything. And... Um, the book had spelling mistakes and nobody cared. And then they just took the same version of the book, spelling mistakes, grammar mistakes and all, and then they put it on the shelves and it became an instant bestseller. Stayed on the list, uh, Globe and Mail, which is our big newspaper, stayed on the list for nine months. And then that success is what got me on the radar with the Americans. And now I got an agent out here and he made it clear that 
you can't get them for another book unless you you republish this one. And uh, that's when I was like, look, this has been a five-year journey for this book. It has continually proven it has legs. People are connecting with it. People can open this book up to literally any page and find something they connect with. It's to the point where I've disconnected myself from the book. I'm a fan of the book. I don't even look at myself as a guy who wrote it. And I was like, look, this book saved my life. Like I wrote this book to get at, this was my therapy to get out of my dark place and, and develop my, I call it the adult mind. I feel like this is the mind that all adults need to have to develop my mindset to get out of the hardest situation I've ever been in in my life. Plus, once I finished it, I was able to monetize off of it for the last five years independently. Then in Canada, it sold more copies in one month. In Canada, which isn't a big market, it sold more copies in one month than I sold in the previous three years. And I was like, this book has legs. Just keep giving me new trampolines to bounce it off of, and I'll show you how high it can go. And again, I can, I can even see it with, with, with these publishers in terms of after a week and a half, we were on our third print. Oh. You know, So it, they, they were very uh, modest with how many they printed. So we're, we're going to keep trying it. We're just, I'm going to open it up, like you said, right, the yep. random check. Round 48.